If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's episode, you'll be hearing all about the remarkable lives of the last surviving veterans who served in Britain's largest female service during the Second World War. The historian, author and broadcaster Tessa Dunlop has written a book on the subject and she spoke to BBC History Revealed staff writer Emma Slattery-Williams, painting a picture of what it was like to be young, female and at war. Your new book, Army Girls, looks at the stories of 17 women who served in the British Army during World War II. These women were part of the Auxiliary Territorial Service, also known as the ATS. What was the ATS and why was it formed? The ATS was formed in a bit of a blind panic. Now, I think um, our generation, who have just... currently still really in at the tail end, hopefully the tail end of a national crisis, uh, will realise that governments aren't always as prepared as they should be. And I'm afraid that was the case once again with the British government um, between the wars, not just in the case of rearming generally, but particularly about the role of women in war. I mean, almost inevitably, I suppose, given they had their heads in the sand about the prospect of war and, you know, were really until arguably the Munich crisis, hadn't got all guns blazing in terms of turning around munitions, getting men ship shape. How could we possibly anticipate or expect that they would do the equivalent for women? And even once war had broken out, once the ATS, the Auxiliary Territorial Service, which was effectively the support system initially for all the military services... And then by 1940, it was exclusively for the army. So, and they always wore khaki. The other two services, the WAFs and the Wrens, rather more famous, I think, in many respects, the WAFs and the Wrens. They've had more attention. They got a different class generally of girl applying to them. The sheep blue uniform helped. We'll come to other different aspects of those services. But the ATS, this Army for Women, Um, was in fact initially set up in a sort of belated panic in 1938 by the only woman who was really available and been been harking on about it for quite some time. She had won. She was the first woman to win a CBE uh, for her role in the First World War. That was Dame Helen Gwynne Vaughan. She was too anachronistic. She was too old, uh, really, to be leading something like that and in in order for the service to have a broad appeal, which it didn't. And she said herself, the service got off to a very bad start. So initially it was sort of for hobbyists, you know, tweedy women in the home counties, you know, doing a bit of marching and tidying up the mess room in 1939. So it's a narrow appeal. Um, 
but culturally um, worth bearing in mind that while th- there were those, for instance, Helen Gwynne Vaughan, who were aware we were going to need women in this war just as we'd had, as we needed them in the First World War, at the same time, uh, society more generally was in denial about that. You know, the w- Woman's Own very famously wrote after the outbreak of war in 1939, men are standing at their posts and women must remain at theirs, meaning, you know, um, b- by the kitchen sink please. Um, And therefore, it took a while for us to wake up. And what's extraordinary is, and one of the women in my book, all the women I should say in the book, um, were alive when I was writing about them. Um, Sadly, they're all extremely old. If you think it's the 80th anniversary of conscription for women this year. Um, So the the very youngest was that my youngest woman was 96. She joined up in 1943, if you do the math. Um, and my oldest, sadly now dead, she died um, in August, was 102. So I've been working with women on the precipice of life. Uh, I was very lucky um, t- to work with them and, and catch their stories. Um, but Anne, who's, who's sadly no longer, she died in, in July, her mother was W1, the first woman to sign up to the ATS in 1938. And rather wonderfully, by the time her daughter signs up, aged 18 in 1943, the conversation has entirely changed. You have this picture, you know, um, and pictures of her mother in tweeds and pearls, etc., getting into her uniform. Um, it's sort of like, as I said, a hobby. But by the time Anne signs up in 1943, it's the bricks and mortar of public life. Women are expected to do this. It is their obligation to serve in the war. What were women allowed to do in the ATS? Ah, well, again, that changed, you see. It was very, it's very interesting. I have found been quite a lot of interesting I know that was very very different very different in so many ways obviously but that the way in which a country responds to a national crisis and the way in which we play catch-up and the conversation changed it's like this constantly shifting experience if you think Covid feels like it's gone on forever and it's under two years in the second world war 39 to to 45 this was gargantuan it was over five years long so it was a, a, a very rapidly moving feast particularly concerning the role of women you know, I'm, I was born in the 70s. I'm one of those kids brought up on don't bake cakes, burn your bra, don't bake cakes and beat the boys. So I'm kind of a hardened old school second gen feminist. But even I was surprised by the extent, I think is the right word, even I was surprised by the extent of the gender division during the war. And I've done a lot of research about 20th century women, but in the army, you know, patriarchal, sexist, as you know, probably you can't get a more sexist patriarchal institution. So when you're trying to sort of find a role or insisting there needs to be a role for women in an institution like that, you're going to see this baked in what we'd now call sexism. They would call it, you know, traditional gender. So we wouldn't even use the word gender, but the traditional spheres for male and female. And that meant that initially when the ATS is set up, it's not given a legal footing. They're still sort of camp followers, which they've been for centuries, a fairly demeaning term at worst, refers to sort of prostitutes tagging along in the Crimean War, um, which is really unfair because the women have always um, historically played a, a very important support role behind the front line. So the ATS has no um, military standing and women can only do five trades, uh, including, again, lowly trades, orderly, cook. The the most glamorous it got was being a driver. That was the role that all girls wanted. Um, And being a clerk was the only really one that had an equivalent kind of male status in the army. So again, that was another reason why the ATS, this female army, 
was on a back foot in comparison with the WAF and the Wrens, who had a more innovative um, image. I mean, don't forget the Wrens never at sea motto. It wasn't going to be that much of an adventure being in the Wrens, in inverted commas. But they, the Wrens had that kind of wonderful um, seafaring tradition, and that's why they kind of called in the, the classy crop of girls. They never relied on conscription. The WAF had a more innovative um uh, image and also they could you know you could work in the plotting room in uh, at, at an aircraft base at an aerodrome early on in 1914 during the Battle of Britain for instance women had some pretty important roles that wasn't replicated in the ATS until 1941 when it's basically a bit of it's not action stations so much as panic stations you know we've got our backs against the wall Russia hasn't yet uh, but Operation Barbarossa, Germans haven't yet invaded Russia, so we haven't got that war on two fronts thing to suck up the German military. America aren't in the war. We're not on our own. Obviously, we've got our empire, but it's a pretty lonely space that Britain's occupying, and it looks and we know the war's going to go on and on. So we've got to therefore look at what resources we have, and that the key resource is women. And so, first of all, you get this overhaul of women's roles in the army. The Army Act gives them for the first time legal status, which just overjoys Helen Gwynne Vaughan. She says, "I've arrived in the land of Moses," and then is promptly sacked because they've worked out, guess what? Sort of long in the tooth old. You know, she's a she's a termagant, one woman described. I mean, she was a pretty scary old woman, you know, and wasn't the sort of modern face this new service needed. The other thing that changed overnight was um, the proliferation of trades available to women. That was in April 1941. Um, and key roles, so intelligence, i.e. Bletchley Park, there were about 300 women who worked there. Of course, that's one of my areas, so I knew about that already. But other, other areas, signals, again, that's in relation, interestingly, to the um, intelligence arena, because in signals, you're often intercepting Y Station girls, you know, you're intercepting communications. Um, so signals, they played a very important role, thousands of them. And so too in, and probably most crucially in terms of the narrative in my book, um, on the anti-aircraft gun sites, so therefore within AA command. They weren't, however, part of signals. They weren't part of the Royal Artillery who they were working for. They were never called gunner girls like the men were gunners. They didn't get credited with that status. And this was all the way through the war. It was like a stone in the shoe, you know, and, and there was an issue both for men and women. And sometimes the ATS held back their own women, sort of almost worried about um, where relinquishing the status of their ATS girls into the Royal Artillery would leave them. So you get this kind of curious case of what looks like on paper women, women holding back women. But um, just quickly, if I may, on the the, the role of the, the ATS uh, in the NAA command, this was one of the main driver really behind the introduction of conscription. So I don't know how much you know, Emma, about anti-aircraft command, AA command. It's fine to know nothing. I knew very little until a year ago. <laughs> no, no, do, do, do explain. AA command is sort of like, arguably the sister service of um, the, the, you know, the RAF. What goes up must come down. You know, um, if you're going overhead and you're bombing Germany, you're going to get the Luftwaffe coming over here and bombing us. And very early on, in fact, in between the wars, it was recognised that um, this was going to be a war that was going to be fought in the air to an extent. I mean, at the beginning of the war, they thought it would almost be entirely fought in the air. Um, 
And um, that meant we had to not only work out how to improve our own air force and grow it at speed, but we also had to improve our anti-aircraft defence, our defence on the ground from gun sites. And perhaps inevitably, you know, the flying men with their flying jackets and their backpacks, you know, that's the kind of sexy area. I was, I was funny enough listening to a, a brilliant book, a memoir by um, Chatterton. I can't remember, was he a general? I should know. Anyway, look it up. It was The Wings of Pegasus, quite brilliant, brilliant memoir. And um, he was talking about being in the RAF in the, in the ni- early 1930s and how men were so excited to be in the service. They almost felt they should be paying for it. They shouldn't be being paid. They should be paying for it. In fact, quite a lot of them died on those test flights. You know, they just got foolhardy and often the tech let them down. The, the reverse was true. You know, AA Command always had a recruitment crisis. You're not going to be wanting to be the bloke standing on the ground with a static gun at home in your own country, watching shrapnel you've just sent up into the air, fall back down again. And by the way, always, almost always missing your target because until technology improves, it's very, very hard to shoot down a moving target. It's almost, I mean, initially it was almost impossible. In fact, the first two hits, the first two enemy engagements we had in 1939, we were hitting our own aeroplanes. Yeah, luckily we didn't hit them. Actually, we missed them. That was, that was That's right. So th- th- what that taught us in, in 39, late 39, there were two attempts to fire on what was considered to be enemy aircraft. And in both cases, we missed. But the gratifying news was they weren't actually enemy aircraft. They were our own. So there was a silver lining. But it was a reminder of just how difficult it was going to be to hit down, to shoot down the, this flying object. And we were caught with our pants down uh, during the Blitz. We didn't have the kit and we didn't have the men. So in the Blitz, during the Blitz, we've got a recruitment crisis. We're nowhere near asking women to stand, step up and serve. They're still just cooks and orderlies and there's not nearly enough of them anyway. And um, in fact, the one fortuitous thing, and it's why leaders are very important, um, is that A Command had a very far-seeing, um, innovative, and I would say feminist general, General Sir Tim Frederick Pyle. And he had predicted before the Second World War that women would be needed on anti-aircraft sites. Uh, And he had run the relevant tests. Uh, A Carolyn Haslett, who was an electrical engineer, a female electrical engineer, her specialism was gadgets and girls and how um, they, you know, work together in the the domestic arena. She was called on to... um, uh, onto his uh, gun sites, you know, up in, um, Sur- the, in the Surrey Hills on a Sunday to watch his men work. And she concluded that, yes, girls could do everything on a gun site with the exception of the heavy lifting, loading and firing that was required on a gun. Well, that was skipping over a dainty ditch, to be honest. What's interesting is in the army, um, initially, there was a feeling that women were never going to be able to replace the roles of men. This was very important in a society where Women were decorous or presumed to be and were in the domestic arena and men worked. So in order not to undercut that, not to destroy the the, the basis on which society existed for the post-war world, um, it was important that women while recruited were not given, were not not credited with the same clout. Now, that meant that, for instance, in a tranche of 18,000 in, you know, in a, yeah, in a tranche of 18,000 women, they were recruited in to replace 15,000 men. Initially, it was even believed that women wouldn't be able to type as well as men. So a male army clerk had to be replaced by more than one woman. I know, that was quickly changed. The ratio was quickly uh, reduced to one to one. To be honest, I'm surprised it wasn't actually inverted, that ratio. Um, 
But with heavy lifting, sometimes it was a three to two. So if uh, two men had done a heavy lifting role, then three women could do it. So the idea that women couldn't lift the shells or couldn't fire the guns, that wasn't to do with their physical strength because that had been taken into account in other roles the girls did in the army. This was about making sure women were kept as non-combatants for political reasons. So it was very important if you're going to ask, so what happens is 1941, there's this change which it, where General Pearl goes, you know, after the Blitz, we're caught with our pants down, we don't shoot down nearly enough German bombers. It was, And Churchill himself says, A, command delivered later in the war. P.S. When gun sites were manned, and they kept that phrase, predominantly by women. So in the Blitz, we're caught with our pants down. And Pyle then realises all his good guys are being pulled off, siphoned off to fight abroad, to go to the front line abroad. And he actually says, you know, how can I be expected to manage when I've got two men, in every 25 men, there are five with glass eyes, wonky thumbs, and in the latter stages of venereal disease. So, of course, he then delivers this research he's done before the war, to the war office and says, I need girls on the gun sites. And they go, oh, this is spellbinding. This is, what? This is groundbreaking. What? Steam comes off their bald paps. You can imagine the sort of thing. Anyway, um, eventually, or not even eventually, a few months later, um, once Churchill sent Mary, she's kind of off she goes. Mary's youngest daughter becomes one of the first gunner girls, although that's not actually officially how they were ever referred to. And there's lots of press around you. The first gun site was in Richmond Park. And there's lots of press about girls behind the guns, not allowed to fire the guns, but they're working all the high-tech equipment. So the predictor, which the Mark I, the Mark II, they're coming again. You know, it's like a pressure cooker of invention, tragically, really, that it takes killing millions of people to invent computers and invent extraordinary tech. But that's always been the case. And um, along comes uh, these machines. So initially you have a spotter. Um, where, again, this is a job done by a girl. One of the women in my book, Grace, she's a spotter. She's got binoculars. And, and when she sees first enemy radar, she'll call out, you know, Fuck Wolford, they're called, you know, Meta, Meta Schmidt. She's got a better, she does it better than me. Um, and um, and then the other girls get their machines on them. You have the predictor, which works out speed and bearing, the height finder, which works out that. And all this feeds into the gun so that they can work out when the fuse should be lit and the gun fired. Again, those commands by the end of the war generally being given by girls. So we're commanding the guns to fire, but we're not allowed to pull the trigger. That's how ridiculous. That's the fine line we're dancing on, which, by the way, we've con- we've continued to dance on really until 2018, when finally uh, Gavin Williamson said, you know, all areas of the army were open to women. So this has been an incredibly long journey. Uh, of course, not one that concerned the girls I've been working. I say girls. I mean, in- incidentally, you'll know, Emma, because you're considerably younger than me, that girls is not a particularly sexy word to have in a title of a book. To which I push back against my feminist comrades, often younger than me, have an issue with this word, because the army wanted girls. They didn't want women. They wanted them to be young, biddable and mobile. That's what they wanted. The recruitment age, once um, conscription had been introduced in December 1941, the recruitment age was um, 20 and then it was lowered to 19. But you could sign up from 17 and a half. And Grace, lovely Grace, I love Grace. She um, she lied about her age and went in at 16 because she um, her, her mum had died and she was in domestic service and hated it. So uh, these were young kids and they were more mobile and they had less baggage and they let to have children, annoying husbands, etc. More malleable. What was the public reaction to female conscription? Mixed. Um, one of the big problems, the ATS lumbered under a 
poor image, for want of a better word. And there were two reasons for that. One was sexism, which arguably all the services um, suffered from, and the other was snobbism. If the Wrens, and I know a few Wrens are still alive, hardy old girl is my pat, um, but she considers herself a cut above. Um, and a lot of Wrens did. You know, they were from a different, tended to be from a different social class. And the ATS, although I have my heft of posh women in the book, the sort of tweedy sort, you know, <laughs> um, Lady Martha Bruce, who's utterly terrifying. Um, she's 100, actually, in November. Uh, God bless her soul. She was a lieutenant colonel in the end in the, in the TA after the war, so quite something. So there are a heft of sort of smart women, but the majority of the ATS was drawn in through conscription. And as Martha put it, we were scraping the barrel, you know. So um, you there was a... A broader, it was a broader church in terms of the socioeconomic groups they were drawing from. And that was one of, the, so there was, therefore, there was snobbishness about the sort of girl that went into the ATS. They were all checked, the medical, all the women are hysterical about their medicals, you know, they were knits, scabies, you name it. And if you, you had to be FFI, free from infection, if you weren't, it was like the walk of shame you got rid of, you were deloused. Vera's hysterical, she's absolutely so funny on this. She was like, my God, he pulled my knickers down, you know. <laughs> Given if we think that getting a vaccination is bad, they had loads of inoculations too. Then half of them never were allowed abroad, but they were banged in typhus and this and that and the next thing. Because of course, it was a really big deal. Um, it was a very big deal, of course, to, uh, I can't remember what I was going to say. Oh, yeah, to be in the First World War on the Western Front. It was the first time when fewer men and women had died um, from infection than from bullets. And we wanted to keep it that way in the Second World War. So health and medicals were very important. And the other problem was the sexism. I think there was a feeling it was a bit sort of Bolshevik to put a woman in uniform. And in a way, it made her easy prey, fresh meat, um, kind of anonymous um, for men. And this was, to me, this was, I find this fascinating, actually, um, in the book was the sort of Me Too undertones, or rather no Me Too undertones, the sort of 1940s, um, ex extraordinary levels of not just sexism, but the tolerance, the women. It was that I think what su didn't surprise me, but what did actually shock me a bit, that men, obviously the heroes of the piece, because they're on the front line dying, predominantly, although some women do die, we'll come to that. Men um, are expected to dodge advancing bullets and women their main roles seem to be to uh, dodge advancing men. And it, paragraph 11, as Anne told me in no uncertain terms, um, was, the, was the paragraph that the rule book that all girls knew about because it told you that if you got pregnant, you were out on your ear. And of course, there was no contraception, really. And there was a huge number of men coming into the country. In the build-up to D-Day, the two years before D-Day, you get one and a half million men roaming around Britain, <laughs> footloose to an extent and fancy-free. Um, a lot of them from America and from the colonies. You get um, soaring rates of venereal disease and you get a sort of national panic. We're asking girls to put on a uniform and leave home. And we're not worried about jerry bullets. We're worried about allied men, I'm telling you. That was the big concern. So there was actually a parliamentary committee, the Markham Committee, which looked into the conditions of the three female services and read their, when I say the condition of the three male services, it really was about the behaviour of the women. Were they becoming promiscuous? Of course, you can, and you don't even need to ask, Emma, there was no equivalent research into the male British oh, army. I was about you know? to ask that, yes. Yeah. <laughs> 
dear me, no. And uh, and this uh, remained a big, big concern. And in the Times, you know, when conscription is being introduced, it's a huge debate. Churchill has to lead it. It's a U-turn for him. He never wanted to conscript women. He thought it would demoralise men. He wasn't concerned about the women. He was worried about demoralising his men, of course, and also parents being worried. There was no... The weird thing is all this debate went on and women, nobody really ever consulted the girls themselves, who incidentally, a lot of them by this stage were quite keen to sign up. Was there any resistance in Parliament to bringing in conscription for women? Yes. So Churchill is persuaded... By the beginning of December, Churchill's persuaded that we need to introduce conscription for women. There's going to be various caveats in order for him to get it past Parliament. Nobody, what's fascinating is, and I, you know, in in lockdown writing this book with limited access to books, I have most of the big Churchill biographies and really none of them talk about this. You know, they all focus on a few days later, the, uh, the entry of America into the war. But nobody's looking at five days earlier in Parliament. He's headlining the debate on conscription for women, and it's a U-turn. He didn't want this, and he he, he was a great orator, so he sort of talks his way out of it rather wonderfully. It's like, it's like a fish in a in a net with a hole, and he says, "You know, these are going to be the girls behind the guns, and um, we're not going to ask any married women." We're not going to obligate any married women to serve, even if they're married without children. And um, the other caveat was they don't have to go into the military services, i.e. uniform, which was sort of talisman, a touch paper for many, this idea of putting girls in uniform. They could, if they wanted to, sign up and work in a munitions factory. Well, you can imagine how that went down with the girls. They would rather be, most of them chose the military over the munitions factories, unless they had sort of personal reasons where they couldn't move, you know, they couldn't be mobile or some such. So um, that was that, that was significant. And I think um, it, it's interesting to me, because I think obviously biographers of Churchill tend to be male. Therefore, they're looking at that. I mean, he was a great leader. He's a great orator. He's a great military leader. But that kind of, it takes... For a male army to function, it takes women behind it. And, and historically, we always know that. And, and this was when we did it on a mass scale for the first time. And what's really interesting, this rebranding of the ATS. So they have to get more women and they have to get women to want to join and be proud to join and proud to wear the uniform. The uniform also was seen as hateful compared to the chic blues of the of the wafts and the wrens. It's changed and redesigned, but it's sort of too little too late in 1941. Uh, Agnes Hardy actually was quite an outspoken Labour critic of this idea of the hardening of women and asking women to leave home and how it wasn't these future mothers of our children and, you know, and there was lots of caveats about what they could and couldn't do. They were had a more lenient time. Initially as well, they were given a, a worse diet. The girls remember this awful food. Well, I'd say worse, but they were, had less food and salad, but it wasn't really salad. Vera was like, it was carrot. It wasn't salad. It was raw carrot. That doesn't count as salad. So, it, and also they could take leave for family reasons. They could have half a day off on a Sunday. So in many respects, it was more cushy to be a girl. But most crucially of all, um, they couldn't fire guns. And they, but they could be allowed now from 1941 on operational sites, but they couldn't fire guns. That The irony there, and Daphne, who's wondrous, Daphne got COVID, but she lived on. She still lives. She's 98 and gorgeous. And she lost a very good friend who inspired her to sign up, actually. She lost her lovely Dorothy, aged 18, on a gun site. Now, the thing is, you can say a girl's a non-combatant, but shrapnel falling back down to earth or an enemy raider doesn't discriminate about who it fires against. And so Churchill, in this speech, 
to the House of Commons? Is there going to be the gu- the technology means we can have girls behind the guns, i.e. the original drone girls is effectively what they are. And by the way, drone queens are still quite a big thing. I don't think they like being called that. But in America, in the American military, they always get more girls applying to be um, drone queens in America a disproportionate number than in other areas of the military service. And it's probably a hangover from the Second World War. Eisenhower saw how well our mixed batteries functioned and he mirrored them. He recognised that they were a great success story. So these girls came in behind the guns. It wasn't without teething problems, had plenty of teething problems. One of the, but they weren't, they couldn't shoot the guns, but they did die. So Dorothy Daphne's friend gets killed. She's, she's, you know, and, and Dorothy went to her, her funeral back in her village. You know, it was a big deal if a girl died on British soil, defending king and country, aged 18. She wasn't the first girl to die on an ATS gun site. Laura Caffney was the first, actually. The whole thing, you know, it's, it's kind of underwritten. And because you're losing quarter of a million British men, I mean, nothing compared to some of what other countries lost, to be honest, on the Eastern Front. It was just like horror. It was like a meat grinder. It was horrific. But, um, so if you're losing quarter of a million British men on the front line or thereabouts and, and through bombing, you're you're not focused on how many women you're losing. And you certainly don't want to focus on it because you want to encourage girls to, to sign up. And the deal is then they're going to be safe. They're non-combatants. Well, the safe and safe, we're at war. Also, life is cheaper, of course. So the job Grace was doing, height finding, is exactly the job Nora, um, Nora Caffney was doing when she died. And Vera's job on the predictor was the job that Dorothy was doing when she died. So these jobs weren't without risk. It was the only area in full-time operational service throughout the war on British soil, the AA Command gun sites. And girls outnumbered men on those sites from 1942 onwards. Um, and, and there was quite a lot of fuss made, actually, about Laura Cav- um, Nora Cavani when she died. She was the first girl to die in 41 on a gun site. And, and not the first girl, it should be said, but on, on a gun site. And, and it, sort of, it was reported, you know, and the way it was reported was interesting. It's quite, obviously quite a lot of concern about how you report something like that. And in that context, you know, she carried on, you know, that the service of these gun sites carried on their operation as before, smoothly. Um, you know, no matter that a girl had died, i.e., you know, girl. So this, that walking all the time, the war office and the government are walking this tightrope where women need to be proved fit to serve, but at the same time, they can't lose their feminine status. Because if they do, then why is it manly being at war? Does that make sense? It's a, it's a really fine line. So Nora Caffney did really well. She served wonderfully. She carried on operating her machine. She took a hit to the head. She fell on the ground and she was immediately seamlessly replaced by a fellow ATS recruit. And we went on firing at the enemy raiders. So that's the narrative. Um, and, and all the while, you know, but she's not firing a gun. Do you, do you see that the line they're walking? Um, so women can be heroes; they can't be combatants by mid-war. And this is a this is a significant change of status, but still very much within the traditional structure of male female um, that governed the way in which we lived in, in the middle of the twentieth century. I think it's really important we hold on to that because so much has changed, and I think sometimes we're all really impatient for more change. And I'm not saying we should sit back and go, "Yeah, but look what we've done." But it is worth clocking where we've come from. And to be honest, talking to a lot of the women who fought on guns like Vera and Grace and Mar. It's interesting. I pushed them on their take. You know, I wrote in the book, I interrogate Grace, you know, and, and, and the copywriter, I think interrogate's a bit hard, Tess, you know, so did you really interrogate a 98-year-old? And I was like, did a bit. 
because Grace would go, no, 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 it was quite right that we couldn't do the guns. You know, they were heavy. We couldn't have done the guns and the men, you know. And then, um, and I'm like, but yeah, but Grace, you could have done the guns. You could have just got one more girl in. You had got, and no, 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 but she's very loyal to that part of her past. But at the same time, if you ask her now, would she like to go and be on the front? Oh, yes, yes, now I would, yes. So it's like times have changed and so has Grace you know, back then and loyal to that bit of her past, but at the same time. So and that's, you know, these women are time travellers. You've got to cut them some slack. They've been around for, for 90, well, nearly a century. So their interpretation of things is going to be cast through the lens of their time. And sometimes they're playing catch up. Sometimes they're asking their own questions about that. What's interesting, going back to the Me Too bit, uh, there was great concern about putting women on a gun site with men because it meant they were living in close proximity with men um, and publicly. You know, the sort of you know, object, if you can imagine, there's over a thousand gun sites in Britain. It was a different sort of military architectural landscape that we couldn't imagine today. And uh, yeah, it got press attention, but also you had to make sure that the men were separated from the women, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there were obviously concerns and with, um, with and to an extent with good reason. Um, a lot of the older men, so what happens is initially, Pyle thinks, right, well, I'm going to get rid of all the younger men and I'm going to put an older man when these girls come in. And it was the wrong decision because as Martha writes in a letter home, God, these dirty old men. You know, you can imagine sort of bottom squeezing at best that went on with this sort of presumptuous, entitled man who thought it was hysterically unorthodox and initially didn't want to work with women. And then by the end, Pyle had changed his mind and actually worked out that it was better to recruit in younger men who didn't find it so hysterically unorthodox, to use his expression, to be working with women and who were potentially more respectful of girls of their own generation. But in terms of, of women being outnumbered, the biggest concern came with the service overseas. Do you want me to tell you about that? I, well, I was just going to say, um, what was the rationale behind not letting women pull the trigger? What was the fear there? Well, they would lose their non-combat status. Look, if, if a girl pulls it... So Vera tells me firing the guns was a manly thing to do. So if a woman pulls the trigger, it stops being a manly thing to do, doesn't it? We've got, you know, the, the, the way in which we thought was very, very different. Being feminine was super important. When we talked about returning soldiers in 1945, at the end of the war, all the emphasis and, and all the way it was drawn up, the conversation was about men, the male returning soldier. Also, there was a huge number of women serving overseas by this stage and also still to be demobbed within Britain. And the only caveat they got was that they wouldn't be getting a, a civilian suit they'd be getting coupons so they could choose their own clothes because it was really important for them to be feminine. And they, was, they, they said, this was said in Parliament, you know, it's really important that they can reacquaint themselves with being feminine. You know, women, the Beveridge Report in 1942, you know, the procreation of the British race, this is the great duty of women. 19, the late 1940s and 50s are not liberal decades. Women are back to the housework and the home, the home and hearth into the private arena. Now, you can't fully push the genie back into the bottle. But don't forget, second wave feminism comes very late. There is no great feminist watershed in the wake of World War II. And what's really interesting is with this dancing, this semantic dance around what women could and couldn't do, not necessarily reducing their risk, although obviously they went on the front line, but within those roles on, say, a gun site, doesn't reduce their risk of death, but it reduces their capacity as a potential soldier. And soldiering needs to be seen as male. And it's called the helix effect. And a lot of academics have talked about this. Sometimes I think academics talk a bit to themselves, which is why you have to write about like army girls to smash it out in the arena, the public arena. It's called the helix effect, where every war, women walk, get a step further. You know, in the First World War, we know at the end of the First World War, you get um, uh, uh, partial emancipation for women and the vote for women. 
and and we see them step up and do male jobs and and work in the uh, serve in the WAAC. And likewise, in the Second World War, equivalent scenarios, although without this feminist watershed. But the problem is for women in both these cases, they're one step behind men. Because if women are stepping up, it's men who are the heroes. Men are dying. It's male youth that's being mown down. And therefore, the cachet and the standing of men increases more significantly than, than it does for women. Does that make sense? So weirdly, although they've taken one step forward, in some ways, a war also means women have taken two steps back. In, in, in that feminist narrative of progress, if you're looking at progress in the public arena and the professional arena. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. They grow up pretty god PDQ, pretty goddamn quickly, I've got to say. And we're expecting a lot of our girls, but it's all the emphasis is all on women. It's women in the auxiliary service. I mean, I'm afraid it's dubbed the auxiliary tart service. That's what it's called. <laughs> I just wanted to go back to what you were saying about Churchill. You said that um, most of his biographies don't cover the female conscription. They focus on America's entry into the war. Do you think if America had entered the war earlier, female conscription might have not happened or happened a lot later? I think it, I think it would have happened, interestingly, because one of the, logistically one of the big problems um, that came with America entering the war was the build-up for D-Day. But um, what we forget is not just, I think sometimes the, you know, the death, although we do talk about that can be a bit lionised and we only ever look at our allied deaths, I feel, but also um, just the sheer quantity of bureaucracy and administration that was required to maintain an army of nearly two million men before you put them into Europe. So we're their landing station really here in Britain and their training ground for over a year. Well, you've got to feed those men. You've got to um, house those men. You've got to clothe those men. And you've got to type up every single order, every troop movement. You've got you know, everything, everything. No stone is left unturned. Who does that work? Because remember, the men are in the field. The women do that work. That's the ATS. So you would predominate the ATS. Of course, the big problem is none of the girls want to cook anymore because they've been told they can hold, they don't actually ever get to. But in this wonderful um, recruitment film done by Leslie Howard, it's the last film he ever does before he dies. And it's called The Gentle Sex. Of course, it's called The Gentle Sex. And it's um, to encourage recruitment into the ATS. And it's so sexist. It's actually worth watching. It's just hysterical. It's got its own charm. It's got a stellar cast. But in it, one of the women, I can't remember who the actress is, she goes, I'm dreaming of a great big gunny wunny like this. And I'm like, dream on, love, because you ain't ever going to get a great big gunny wunny. You know? (laughs) And that's the sort of heroic portrayal of soldiering. And girls want a slice of the cake. They are going to get to go on a gun site. They certainly don't want to end up in the kitchen. I've got a cook in my book, Diana, bionic Diana. She's heaven. Um, but And she was adopted and, and realised she had to stand on her own two feet. And the, the, mo- the most likely job she was going to get after the war was going to be... Um, was, was going to be in, in, in the kitchen. And so she, so she signs up on a practical level as a cook and learns how to cook for 500 men. Um, so, so yeah, I think there would have been conscription for women because, because of the logistics that would have been required. You mentioned the overseas service. Many of these girls probably wouldn't have left their, their towns and villages, let alone their country. That must have been incredibly daunting for them. Where, where were they being sent? Well, this was, oh, this was another problem. 
um, because actually women um, in the ATS weren't dropped predominantly, there's always exceptions. And don't forget, and in fact, I start my book with Olivia. She wore um, a British, a French uniform. She was a British girl, but she wore a French uniform. It's quite a complicated story. And she was in France during the 1940 occupation. She won a Croix de Guerre for her extraordinary service, being the equivalent of a fanny. Now, I don't want to get too technical on you, but the fanny is the first aid nursing yeomanry. Um, she was in the French equivalent. Uh, were a sort of, they were the only uniformed female service that was retained between the wars. And they were like an elite brigade, predominantly focused on transportation until they supported SOE. I have two fannies in my book. And the reason I got away with that is because they came under the, um, very reluctantly came under the umbrella of the ATS. They were sort of the classy girls. And they certainly didn't want to be told what to do by Helen Gwynne, goddamn Vaughan. They had terrible arguments with her. But anyway, the fanny, and again, this is all about snobbery, sometimes class trump sexism in the 1940s. Um, the Fanny were serving overseas before 1944, but except for backing up the British Expeditionary Force in 1940 and recruiting locally, which we did in the ATS, girls overseas locally, there weren't that many um, women in the ATS serving overseas until 1944 when we do a big recruitment push. Now, this goes down like a lead balloon with parents. It's one thing wanting your girls in uniform. It's one thing asking them to go away from home. It is quite another expecting them to go overseas. You might also have lost a son. Your son might be serving away. Your husband might be in a prisoner of war camp, which is the case, in fact, with one of my fannies. And suddenly they're saying, well, we'll want your daughter to go and back up. Because once you've got the launch of D-Day, Who's going to back up your two million strong allied army on the continent? Who's going to feed them? Who's going to man, man the supply lines? Who's going to operate the anti-aircraft sites from Belgium? Girls. So you need to get the girls over there. To do that, you have to ask the permission, a letter of permission from their parents or their husband. But <laughs> problem is not nearly enough women can get, they walk lots of them. Mary Churchill says, God, loads of them are really keen. Oops. But their mamas and papas less so. Of course, Mary Churchill once again is sent off to the continent with her anti-aircraft gun site as a sort of poster girl. But not enough follow. So once again, you get women directed overseas by February 1945 because there's not enough volunteers with letters. I have in my book, I have so Fanny Jean went over in 1944. She got a letter off her mum. She was earlier because she was a Fanny. She went in 44, early January. She went to Egypt. And then she was a code and cipher operator. And then she was in Italy. She's a fascinating woman. God, I love Jean. Next, it's Anne. Now, Anne was born in Burma, part of the sort of good and the great. Her father was a missionary in Burma. It's quite, you know, relatively posh. Vicar's daughter, as she says herself, a well-bred vicar's daughter who was sort of examining girls from the East End of London for knits quite early on in the war. So she is recruited and she gets her parents' permission because they trust her and also because she's travelled a bit, obviously, having lived in empire. So she goes over in um, in the summer and uh, she's been, up until that point, she's been in Inverness doing, writing up the troop movements for D-Day. Not aware that's what she's doing, but that's what she was doing. Um, and she goes, she remembers this interview um, to check she'd be able to handle herself with these legions of men who will vastly outnumber the women, vastly. And remember when they get to occupy Germany, then not only are they vastly outnumbered, um, the women, but men aren't allowed to fraternise with the Germans. So it's not like they can occupy themselves with the natives. That eventually rulers relinquished. But initially, it's seen that women have got to be in occupied Germany. 
but they're outnumbered sort of one to 2,000 in some instances. I mean, it's just ridiculous. You know, every dance, there's way more men than women. And these aren't normal men. These are men who have been through in Italy, where Anne is sent to initially. They've come up from the Middle East. They've been on the road fighting for months, sometimes years. They haven't seen a woman, talked to a woman, let alone had sex with a woman for years. They've been brutalised to an extent. They're emotionally starved. They're missing home. And these girls, often just teenagers, are expected to manage that. That's their job. They manage. They have to contain male expectation and answer. This. So there's this quite rigorous interview about how you're going to manage this. And, um, and Anne gets a bit annoyed because you're asking me too much about sex. And I'm saying, but this is, I find this extraordinary. Like the men are never asked. I've not met, ever met a veteran from the Second World War. Were you, to, you know, told to keep your hands off girls? <laughs> they were told to get their hands on the Germans, you know, in a different context. So, um, and you couldn't, you know, men who were being asked to give up their lives. It's a, it's a, it, it, it was a two very different spheres. So Anne then, you know, she remembers coming back in sort of vans at the end of the night or army trucks and they engineer it so you get in the truck and you have to sit on their knee. And, you know, she'd go, can you stop doing that, please? You know, can you stop doing that, please? You know, and she has to, she has to push the hands down. And, um, and Jean, in her letters home to her sister, sort of goes, oh, God, all the men out here expect that, just expect to be able to kiss you at the end of the night. You know, she's so sweet. She's drinking heavily aged 18. She's got Shinzano in her thingy and Vermouth. And is it Vermouth? Vermouth? I don't know how you say that. I've never drunk it myself. Um, whiskey. She's got a bottle of whiskey in her cupboard. You know, they they grow up pretty god PDQ pretty goddamn quickly, I've got to say. And we're expecting a lot of our girls, but it's all the emphasis is all on women. It's women in the auxiliary service. I mean, I'm afraid it's dubbed the auxiliary tart service. That's what it's called. You know, and, and, and all the all the officers' ground sheets. Joan, who goes over to Germany, she's first in Belgium and then she goes to Germany. She's a bit older, Joan. She's mid-25. She's still alive. Gosh, she's great. She's on voice recognition email. Love Joan. Anyway, Joan has this nightmare solicitor in the legal department, an army in the eagle, legal army department. He leaves her flowers and he tries to kiss her. He even gets in contact with her parents. He like stalks her. He's a stalker. When you read the letters, you're like, Joan, you were being stalked. And she goes, I know. I would have been much more, um, what's the word? Um, she said, I would have managed it much better today. I would have put him in his place much more quickly. They were all sort of worried about letting the men down. Or, you know, they're walking a nightmare because they also know they cannot get pregnant. Brainwash, you cannot. In fact, Grace, one of her friends, got pregnant um, on the height finder. And she was immediately dismissed. Never seen of again. And even now, Grace feels a little bit let down by her. She got pregnant. You weren't allowed to get pregnant. <laughs> I kept my knees together, says Grace. <laughs> what happened to the ATS after the war then? Were all these girls just sent home to go back back to being wives yes. and mothers? Not not all of them. No, not all of them. Um uh but there is an expectation, Churchill anticipates this, that um those who really want to stay in will, for instance, Martha, who goes on to work in the TA. Um, a lot of them aren't demobbed for a little while. So if you're in occupied Germany, Joan stays on until 1946. Uh, ditto Anne uh, in Italy until 1946. Uh, and it's very difficult. You know, there's lovely Barbara who did the same job as the Queen. She drove, she learned to drive and she was a driving instructor, went big trucks. And she's then out of work in Rotherhide. You know, she can't get, there's, there's no work. The prioritisation is male work. She goes, well, it's lucky I married Em and Stan had four children. I became a policeman's wife. And she says, it's lucky I like being a mum because as a policeman's wife, you weren't allowed to work anyway. It was a different era, you know. And uh, and yeah, so a considerable number did. But Maud's heaven. She's still alive, but she's uh, heaven. And she um, was very annoyed because she gets married to her beau. He survives. He lands on, is it Sword Beach? She's part of Commando 3 in, in the D-Day landings. And she's terribly worried and stuff. And But he comes back in September, having done 80 days and broken out of that Normandy pocket. 
and he proposes to her and he comes back then in December and they get married. And she's really miffed that she's pregnant. Well, she's married, so you can be pregnant if you're married. Obviously, if you're married, you can do what you like. Um, but she, she, can you miss the army? And she missed the camaraderie. And they were the first to be, um, be demobbed, were, were married women and pregnant. So with family reason, that was how it was termed. So they were the first to be demobbed, pregnant, married women. And then um, obviously you weren't demobbed if you were just illegitimately pregnant. You were sacked. <laughs> um, honestly, it was brutal, man. It was, it was quite unforgiving. Those were the times. That was the era. And I think it's really important to remember what these... That's why I love... I feel a deep compassion towards our elderly. I think they're misunderstood. And I think we, I think the young generation just sometimes we, we we've, and I'm not even young anymore, you know, I'm, I'm middle-aged, but I think we just forget just how much ch- has changed and how much we're expecting of them to keep up with our ways and to tolerate our ways, given just how much they've done and 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 what those girls have been through, man. It's unbelievable, really. Just just, yeah, it was scary. So I just wanted to give you the statistic where I think I, I didn't get around to it. So ATS girls did die, obviously not in their thousands like men. I think about 770 died in service. Often it was sort of, they're in an airplane and the airplane falls out of the sky because that's what airplanes did then. You know, that's one of the biggest losses, 17 in the Mediterranean. Um, so they die. Um, but what's interesting about that statistic, 770 ATS girls die in the Second World War, is if you compare it to the number of British military personnel who died in the 10-year Afghanistan war, under 500. Do you see? But the way in which we, so the way in which we understand and remember loss today, loss of young life, is very different from the way in the Second World War, when, of course, life was considerably cheaper and far more people died. But it's worth remembering those two statistics to remember that, yeah, women sure did their, their bit, you know. What recognition did they get? You uh, you mentioned in your book um, uh, one of the ladies, Barbara, was behind a campaign to get their, their role. Yeah, she did. She was behind getting a statue World War for the women of World War II. That just wasn't for the military women, although Barbara would like to know it was mainly through the Royal Artillery. Finally, they were allowed into the Royal Artillery many years too late um, and, and given recognition by that service, the IA command girls. Um, that statue was a John Mills statue. You can see it in Whitehall, actually. It's quite prominent. And Barbara thinks it's very ugly. She doesn't like it at all. <laughs> but anyway, it's up. That was 2005. So quite a long time after the Second World War. Was that 60 years? <laughs> um, and I think because they are the last women standing, Barbara wears, uh, she met the Duke of Edinburgh eventually and the Queen. And the Duke of Edinburgh was at Westminster in 2015. And the Duke of Edinburgh says to her, oh, you've got a lot of medals on there. You know, she has them on both sides. And she went, yeah, I'm wearing my late husband's too. Because you can do that if, you, if your partner has died. And I, well, I think it's rather wonderful, you know, that women live longer than men generally. So um, so they are going to be the ones that finally carry carry that torch and and I've just talking about my, my Belletcher girl and I've just written an obituary for her and I, and I did say to I, said, I wrote it for the Guardian actually and I said to the Guardian I think you're going to find this is one of the very last ones you know that that because some women there's some women still alive who served at Belletcher Park but I think in order to merit a, a national obituary you have to have done some some kind of landmark role and the you know there's just I, I think in one there's one more God bless her soul, who actually makes a, a cameo in my Army Girls book, um, Betty, I love her, because she was a very rare ATS girl at Bletchley Park. And um, when I'd written about her in the Bletchley book, I hadn't examined or interrogated, to use that word again, her the how that military role worked alongside this predominantly civilian organisation, Bletchley, this kind of, or it was sort of a weird hybrid organisation. And she was interesting about that. So there was 
very limited recognition straight after the war for their for their none mom. nobody cared about what girls did in fact jean came back and went god it was awful she came back because her dad was returning fanny jean who was then you know batting off men who were trying to kiss her in italy and um intercepting uh, decoding rather messages from um resistance fighters in the balkans so she's had quite a role she's had quite a life she's only 19 she goes home and her dad goes girls don't drink whiskey you know, she's like, oh, God. And it's all about him. He's been a prisoner of war. Obviously, he's had a horrific time. Um, Colonel Kerry Outram. And so she thinks, I need to get the hell out of here. She goes back to Italy. <laughs> yeah, she's like, this is rotten. You know, and she predicts it in her letters. She goes, God, after the war, it's going to be hell. And she was right. Dull as hell. Nobody asked them about their war. Oh, I remember that with the Bletchley girls when I had to write about it. And I said, oh, how difficult was it to keep a secret? Well, it's quite easy to keep a secret if no one asks you. No one asked you what you did. It's not really difficult, is it, keeping a secret if not, no one's interested in it? How did all the women you interviewed look back on their time during the war? No, fondly, definitely. Most of them. It was well, only one, Nanza, the only woman in my book who had to be conscripted, didn't want to leave her job. But even she quite enjoyed being in the ATS. And there was something rather wonderful now because she's just moved into a star and garter military veterans only care home uh, what did uh, the women think about the fact that women are now allowed since 2018 in all areas of the british army did they did they agree with that uh yeah funnily enough so martha who's well scary i said to martha look martha are you a feminist she went, you've asked me that before i went yeah i know i've asked you it before and you didn't answer so can you tell me this is i'll put this in the book can you tell me are you a feminist she went i'm not a chain them to the railing sort of feminist if that's what you mean and I went, no, I know, but you know, yes, I suppose I think women should be given an equal shot. And I said, what about women uh, in, in, you know, behind the, you know, now being able to open up to all areas of the army? And there's this deathly silence. And she goes, huh, not quite sure how to answer that. Because I think a bit of her thinks, no, it's, does, it's unnecessary. But another bit of her thinks, but hmm, I believe women getting, you know, so she's quite conflicted. And then she gave this wonderful Martha style answer. She went, it's fine if they're the right height and weight, I believe. Like this is such a good answer. <laughs> So that, so yeah, and then actually, as Grace told, um, was interviewed the other day, actually, and we were talking about it, and I, I put it in the book, you know, great. Let, 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 in fact, it's in the introduction of the book, I think, you know, oh no, you know, it was fine that girls were, were excluded. And then in the next minute, it's like, oh no, girls should be allowed to do whatever they want to do nowadays. So this, this is a kind of conflict, of course. You know, we are but human. It was like my Bletchley girl, Pamela, she gave up acting because her husband said, well, if you, um, you, after the war, you know, if you go back onto the stage, you'll be going out to work when I come in. And she went, well, that's the decision I made because I thought I wanted to be with Jim and a great marriage. But she said, but would I have made that decision today? No. But today's society is different. She's a pro- we're all a product of our society. And I think it's really important to hold on to that. Uh, I just quickly ask, uh, what was uh, Queen Elizabeth, where she was Princess Elizabeth at the time, what was her experience in the ATS? She signed up very late. Uh, she very much wanted to sign up, all girls did by that stage, to do her bit. And her family obviously imbued with the military spirit, her aunt, um, the controller commandant. But, and there is always a but, um, her daddy, George VI, did not think that uniform was the right thing for girls. He said, don't join up. And so Crawfee, he said, don't join up to Crawfee. You'll just end up cooking some god-awful um, admiral's breakfast. So Crawfee stayed put, so did Elizabeth. But of course, Elizabeth comes of age, she's 18. The cabinet say, look, it would be quite good, actually, to have Elizabeth in uniform, but, you know, rally the morale and all that, keep things going, right? Because it's not, even though it's obvious we're going to win, I think, pretty much obvious by 44, you know, it's a long war. It's going to take a while to unravel it. And we also need to respect our military and recognise them in the wake of the war. And so Elizabeth's a great way of doing that. So rather conveniently for old George VI, his daughter serves, but only just. And she trains to be a driver, which is what all girls wanted. I got a couple of drivers. Barbara's the main one. What's significant about Barbara is she trained in the exact same place as the Queen. 
but they'll all tell you the Queen didn't stay in barracks. She went back to Windsor at night. And then I was like, Barbara, so what was it like in barracks at Camberley? Oh, well, she's from Yorkshire. I was only 17 and it was a right eye open. I was an only child, you see. And I'm like, oh, she goes, yeah, there was Marian. Marianne MacDonald from Glasgow, right? She starts going on about Marianne. She was a prostitute. She taught me all. I was terrified to begin with, but she had a heart of gold. And then she's talking about marriage. It's kind of only in the only way a sort of 96-year-old can frame it. This conversation about a prostitute protecting her from the lesbians in the barrack. You know, the whole thing is just insane. Um, and um, and uh, the upshot of it all was that uh, the Queen probably wouldn't have stayed in barracks like those. We decided that this wasn't really the sort of terrain or conversation for a princess uh, who was very sheltered uh, during the war and remained quite sheltered for some time. Uh, just quickly on the subject of lesbianism, actually, and homosexuality in the services. Um, the Markham Committee, which is this parliamentary committee sent out to investigate women's behaviour, was so concerned about... Um, male behaviour, that they sort of really just gave a footnote to um, homo-sexuality, which is how they refer to it in, um, in, in their documents. And um, they sort of warred against it. And they think that only in extreme cases of homosexual promiscuity, um, then does that require posting elsewhere. But of course, thank goodness, you can't actually get pregnant if you're a lesbian. And it was illegitimate pregnancy, which was the way in which society was judging these service girls. And so much so that they do account and they argue that, can you believe this? The Markham Committee argue that there are fewer illegitimately pregnant girls in the services than out of them. That's where we were at. Just so you know where we thought the real enemy lay. Um, so, so Barbara, and meanwhile, Barbara had her eyes open. And what's interesting is when you talk to the women, Penny, um, the late the late great Penny, for instance, her great eye opener wasn't about male. I think that most of them already knew about men. You know, Maud was like, oh God, I'd already had to ward off quite a few men by the time I got into the army. She's, you know, she's 21 year old. What for them was the great sort of discovery was other women, seeing other women up close and personal, not necessarily in a sexual capacity, but, oh, I couldn't believe it. I watched her do a strip wash and I thought she got bigger knockers than me, you know, and that kind of stuff, you know, and then they were cuddling on their bed, you know, like this kind of, oh, I didn't know, I didn't know, I didn't know that lesbianism existed. You know, they were really sheltered, some of these girls. So this is a kind of great, not just on a professional level, they were paid, they were uniformed, they were serving their country, but also just on a personal level, getting to know each other and how to conduct themselves and, and and, and, and of course, these were grey areas. Male homosexuality was illegal at that time. It was very much more a grey area for, for lesbianism, but certainly um, not condoned by society. Things have changed. And finally, I think we must mention, and I, and I have her in the book, although she has a, a too small a role because it was very, very hard to communicate with her all the way over in Barbados. But I think not only is she the oldest woman in my book, at 104, still alive today. Um, but uh, Ina was, um, I think, is the only ex extant woman from the West Indies, black ATS girl who came over here. So very few were allowed over. The war office was very, very concerned about allowing too many women of colour um, into Britain. Um, but when they came over eventually and the colonial office pushed in the other direction, desperate to sign up, because what better way to bind hearts and minds? Um, Ina comes over when they come over. Wow, the photo opportunity. So the, 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 the sort of public narrative is, hey, look, we're the all-inclusive empire. Our daughters have arrived. But actually, it's very much an exclusive 
um, it, it, it's one about exclusion more than inclusion. Only ever a hundred girls come over, and Ina does does incredibly well. She comes over. She's twenty six. She doesn't want to be a clerk. Not come all the way over here just to be a clerk. I was a clerk back home. She's originally from Jamaica. She's staying in Barbados at the moment, and um, and instead she she gets some. Um, trained up she does radar like martha which of course is breaking new high tech the cutting edge only the classiest sort of girls did radar i'll have you know that's according to beryl also no longer with us god damn it she was a physical training instructor i had the whole gamut around the gamut so there we are that's wonderful you know who i never got fully to talk to because of the complications of technology and her daughter being very busy but she did give me access to some wonderful material and also a, a zoom conversation so that was good so god bless ina long live ina indeed at 104 that was Tessa Dunlop. Her book, Army Girls, is out now, published by Headline. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.